This is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Thanks for tuning in to Politics Friday today. Later, we're going to talk about President Biden's actions on marijuana yesterday and the law in Minnesota involving marijuana. But first, public opinion polls show the top issue on voters' minds as the midterm election approaches is the economy. That's not surprising, given in rising inflation over the past year. Gasoline prices were coming down, but a coalition of oil-producing nations known as OPEC Plus said this week they will cut oil production, apparently in an effort to keep prices high. The Federal Reserve has said raising interest rates, uh, it's been, it has been raising interest rates to try to slow down the price increases, and many people who keep an eye on such things are expecting a recession. So what does the big picture look like? How does that impact the small picture in all of our daily lives? Here to help us look at that is Lewis Johnston. He's a professor of economics at the College of St. Benedict and St. John's University. Lewis Johnston, thanks for coming on again. Thanks for the invitation. It's great to talk to you. Well, give us the latest on inflation, because as I, as I said, gas prices have dropped from their peak earlier this summer. It seemed like uh, the rise in overall prices was at least maybe slowing down a little bit. Yeah, so... The way I've been thinking about it is uh, you see the lightning and then you hear the thunder. So we saw the lightning of the big jump in inflation over the last year to 14 months or so, but now we're hearing the thunder. So it's not quite as big a deal as the initial shock, but those prices that went up over the last year or so, they're rippling through, and especially energy prices. You mentioned um, gas prices. Well, so many things in the U.S. economy and in the Minnesota economy depend indirectly on petroleum, everything from plastics to um, things that we use to package food and, you know, you name it, we wear it. And so energy prices are rippling through. Uh, add a couple of things with the supply chain issues that are still going on, and we've got prices growing at about 5 6% inflation rate. Hmm. And do you think this announcement from OPEC Plus pretty much guarantees that gas prices will rise again, maybe spike again? Well, I don't know about spike, but I think what it does is it says they're going to put a floor underneath gas prices. So we're not going to see gas prices in the $2 range, for example, or in the $2 to $3 range. They're going to try to keep that from going down. Um, there are different things that refiners can do and that uh, you know the oil companies in the United States can do, but crude oil is the basic input to gasoline. So what they're trying to do is to keep the price from going down. Mm-hmm. And you talked about how the price of fuel affects the price of everything else. Is that because just everything involves transportation to some extent or or is uh, is it because oil is also, uh, you know, part of the manufacturing process for things? It's both of those things. So transportation is very important. That shows up especially here in the Midwest when we have longer distances that things might have to be transported. And then indirectly, uh, petroleum and petroleum derivatives are used as feedstock for all kinds of other things from weaving thread that goes into our clothes to manufacturing plastic containers, Um you know, it just ends up being in all these different places. And so if the price of oil goes up, it ends up going through all those different channels. Okay. And here's, here's something that's kind of hard to understand, at least for me, because it seems like one thing that's been counterbalancing the bad news about rising prices is that there's been strong hiring. It's been pretty easy (laughs) to get a job for people. And the government said today that about 263,000 jobs were added in September it's a little bit of a slowdown, but still, 263,000 jobs seems like a good number. Uh, and typically, that would be good news, but now you look at the stock market today, and it seems like it's just dropping like a rock. <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard to untangle that, but actually, it's all being caused by a single factor, which is we had this terrible pandemic. We tried to shut the economy down. Uh, and had to in a lot of ways. And then in order to keep people from suffering, uh, we rightfully, I think, um, put money in their pockets to get by. We had tax cuts, we had uh, stimulus checks, we had a variety of different policies that basically put money in people's pockets and supported them. Well, they have both 
spent some of that money, but they put some of it aside and they're using it to keep on spending right now. So if you start spending a lot, one of the things that happens is you might not be able to find the goods and services that you want because other people are spending too. So that's pushing up inflation. But the fact that people want to buy goods and services, they also need to, the producers also need to hire people. So we've got in a sense, a strong economy. And the Fed, what it's trying to do is slow it down. They're trying to slow it down by raising interest rates, reducing that spending that people want to do. And in turn, that down the line will probably slow down hiring. And so it hasn't shown up yet. But one of the things about monetary policy, what the Fed does, is that it takes a while to ripple through, kind of like those gasoline and oil prices that we were just talking about. It takes a little while. So I'm anticipating this is going to show up in probably the next three months, maybe as long as six, but it's going to start showing up. The unemployment rate is going to start inching up. Um, The Federal Reserve thinks it's going to be in the 4.5% range sometime next year. I'm not sure I would go that far to, to actually put a number on it, but we're going to start to see hiring slow down. We're going to start to see the unemployment rate go up, and that's going to be both for the nation and for Minnesota. Hmm. Talking to Lewis Johnston, he's an economics professor at the College of St. Benedict and St. John's University, talking about the economy, which uh, most polls show is the biggest single issue, the most important issue for people as they prepare to vote in the midterm election. Um, And so the stock market is looking at these jobs numbers and saying, oh, boy, the Fed's going to keep raising interest rates. That's why I'm worried about the economy or that's why I'm trying to ditch these stocks. Is that is that what's happening? That's right. So uh, if the Fed is raising interest rates, that means that the rate of return on safe things like U.S. government bonds is going up. So. Suppose you've got a choice. You can buy something that's more risky, like a stock or maybe a corporate bond, or you can put your money into a perfectly safe United States Treasury. Well, might as well put it into the Treasury. Take your money out of the stock market. Uh Uh-oh, now people are selling stocks. Uh, That's driving the price down. And so it's not that the job market itself is making them look good. It's like you described. They look at those numbers. They anticipate what the Fed's going to do. They figure the Fed's going to raise interest rates. That's going to be bad for stocks. All right. And here's another complicated question, or at least one that confuses me, because the economy actually has, it seems like it hasn't been growing, at least the GDP. And so um, some people say if that happens two quarters in a row, that's a recession. But then you get a jobs number like today where they added 263,000 jobs and it doesn't look like a recession. So how do you describe what is going on right now? So I would describe what's going on right now as a sl- as the economy slowing down. Um, the National Bureau of Economic Research is the arbiter of of uh, recessions and they don't use the two consecutive quarters of GDP uh, decline as a measure. They look at a variety of indicators, including, like you mentioned, how well the job market is doing. They also look at individual indicators within industries. So they look at how is manufacturing doing compared, say, to services, what's going on in agriculture. They also look a little bit at the international dimension because the U.S. economy is connected to the rest of the world so tightly. And then they make a judgment. So one of the frustrating things uh, about having the NBER call the recessions is they don't usually call them for quite a while Hmm. (laughs) until they're far in the rear view mirror. So my judgment is, no, we are not in a recession now. The economy is slowing down. Uh, That's what the Fed wants the economy to do. And so the question is, are they going to slow it down so much that we actually do go into a recession? Right now, it's just too early too early to tell. Mm-hmm. And and what they're hoping for is what they call a soft landing, right? So they slow exactly. it down just enough to lower those prices, but uh, but the jobs people can still get work, right? I mean, exactly. So uh, you know, it, uh, the thing I keep thinking of is in your own in in our own personal lives, we need to think about what's the foam that we should be spreading on our personal runway so that, you know, if we don't get a soft landing, what, you know, we're ready for it. Well, except the price of foam keeps going up. 
can't afford exactly. it. Exactly. Uh, I heard on Marketplace this week, I think they said uh, 91% of CEOs who were surveyed said they expected a recession within the next year. Is that the way you lean to? Uh, I don't know if I would put it that high. I think there's a very good chance of a recession, but I would put it more at 50-50. I think the Fed still has some room. A lot of it's going to depend on what's going on in the international economy. Um, China is slowing down. Um, Europe, obviously, is dealing with a lot of issues. You know, if things go south there, then yeah, I would up my estimate. But um, right now, if things stay kind of the way they are, with what we're forecasting in terms of oil prices and things like that, I still think it's about a 50-50 chance. Hmm. And when you talk about uh, in our each of our own lives, we should uh, put some of that foam on the, on the landing strip um, in case it's not a soft landing. What can people do about this? I mean, everybody's worried about higher heating prices this winter and gas prices. And what do you do? Right. Well, that and that's that's the irony of the situation we're in, because one of the things that you that would be good to do is, you know, most of us live from paycheck to paycheck. But if you can maybe put off purchasing something that you've been thinking about now, I'm be, it's kind of dangerous for me to be even be saying that because that is part of what we have to factor in when we ask, is there going to be a recession or not? Hmm. If people start to do that, if they start to think, well, I better not buy that new refrigerator, or maybe I'll get another year out of my car because gas prices are high and I can't afford the car right now, um, then that might actually cause spending to slow down more than the Fed thinks, cause the economy to slow down a little bit more. And so you've got this little element of self-fulfilling prophecy that's that's always lurking in the background. But to me, just to answer your question directly is, I would think carefully about spending decisions right now, because if things are going, uh, if things are going to go into a recession, you want to have that small, uh, not small, you want to have that emergency fund, you want to have some money put aside if you can. Um, and you want to look at your household budget and basically assume that prices are not going to go down. These prices are going to stay at these levels, and you'll need to plan accordingly. Well, you know, we are, I know you're you're not a politician, you're not in the politics game, but we're four weeks away from an election. Uh, Republicans are blaming the Democrats for this situation. Is that fair? I don't think it is. Um, and I would turn it around if, if it, the parties were reversed. Um, Inflation is not something that politicians can control much. It really depends on the state of, as I said earlier, the amount of spending people want to do and the amount of goods and services that are available, and then throw into that mix what the Federal Reserve and other central banks are doing in terms of interest rates. And, you know, the Federal Reserve, when the pandemic came, they did what you're supposed to do, which is they rapidly lowered interest rates. They made credit more available. But now we have to deal with those consequences. And one of those consequences is inflation. And there's really nothing that anyone either in state government or the federal government can do uh, at this point. Right now, it's really up to the Federal Reserve, unless, and here's, here's one policy that they could do, but I know none of them will, which is you could raise taxes. <laughs> that would slow spending down, just like what the Fed is doing. But I would put the probability of Congress or the legislature enacting a big tax increase at near zero. Lewis Johnston, economics professor at the College of St. Benedict and St. John's University. Thanks so much for coming on today and helping us and helping me in particular understand the economy. You're welcome. Support comes from Think Small Minnesota, supporter of the Early Risers podcast, ensuring equitable access to quality care and early learning education for Minnesota's young children, helping reducing child care shortages and alleviating economic challenges at thinksmall.org. It is the first day of the MPR Fall Member Drive. I'm Mike Mulcahy, joined here today by Stephanie Curtis, Hello. our program director. MPR is powered by people just like you who listen and 
Decide to Give. Today, we're asking you to join in. Help us reach our goal, 750 contributions from listeners on this first day of the member drive. Give now at mprnews.org or call 800-227-2811. But stop the presses, Mike. We have a challenge this hour. Before 1 o'clock, if we hear from 75 people, the NPR Board of Trustees will throw in an extra $5,000. So that's new members, additional contributions, renewing memberships, 75 people. We've heard from 11 people so far. We've got a little bit less than 40 minutes to get this done. So if you are a fan of Politics Friday, if you are thinking about becoming a member or making a contribution, do it now and help us unlock another $5,000. Go to mprnews.org or call 1-800-227-2811. Okay, I have to go start the presses, and then I'll stop them. But (laughs) keep this in mind. The easiest way to do this is to become a sustaining member. That means that uh, you sign up, you tell us how Mm -hmm. much you want to give, we'll take care of it until you tell us to stop. You support the news you listen to, you support the programs on the air, Mm -hmm. and you're up to date on the news and information from around the world and around the state and around your neighborhood it's really a, a, a you have to put a value on what you listen to, yeah. and when you do that and make the contribution, you pay for what you listen to. So choose the amount that's right for you, that fits in your budget, and give a give on this first day. Help us make this challenge. MPRnews.org or eight hundred two two seven twenty eight eleven. It's going to be about fifty two and sunny tomorrow perfect fall day. And just imagine if you had a cozy NPR hooded sweatshirt to wear. We can't get it to you by tomorrow. (laughs) But then next year, when this time rolls around, you'll be all ready. We've got this great NPR sweatshirt. It's hooded. It's soft. It comes in sizes small through 3XL. So no matter what size you like wearing, I've got a giant one that I wear almost as a dress. Uh, $50 per month or $600 a year mprnews.org or call 1-800-227-2811. The real reason to give, in in addition to getting a nice a cozy thank you sweatshirts. gift, like a cozy sweatshirt, <laughs> is because you like what you hear on the radio or you mm-hmm. like what you read on the website. That's why, that's where your money goes. It goes to pay for the things we do here. And you like it because you're curious, because you're an independent thinker, because you like information, that's uh, not tied to a particular point of view, uh, you're a lifelong learner, NPR News is for you. That's why you listen. That's why you should make a gift, because it really will go to pay for the very programs you listen to. You're supporting a public resource here in that reflects Minnesota. Help us get this member drive off to a strong start. Help us pick up these 75 gifts before 1 o'clock. Mm-hmm. You can do it. Donate now, mprnews.org or 800-227-2811. Yeah, before 1 o'clock, this is a this is really generous offer from the NPR Board of Trustees. They said they'll throw in an extra $5,000 if we heard from 75 people. But let me say, like, your, your donation is generous, too. Whether it's $5 a month or $10 a month, that is a generous donation, and we are grateful, and you will help us make this this small goal before 1 o'clock of reaching 75 new members, renewing members, additional contributions, but also the goal of keeping this community-supported station strong. It's a resource for people across Minnesota, and you're helping support with your donation. Go to mprnews.org or call one 800 227 2811. And even while we go back to Politics Friday, keep in mind, you can still go to mprnews.org or call and help us make this goal of reaching 75 people before one o'clock. Thanks. Support comes from GS Motors, a locally owned dealership specializing in pre-owned electric vehicles, working to make electric car ownership more accessible for a more sustainable future. EV home charging made easy, powered by XL Energy, gsmotors.us. This is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. It was a bit of a surprise announcement yesterday when President Joe Biden said he's pardoning thousands of Americans convicted of simple possession of marijuana under federal law. He also urged governors to pardon those convicted of possession under state laws, and he said he would at least look at changing the classification of marijuana as a Schedule I drug under federal law. 
The president noted that many states have already legalized marijuana. Minnesota has done so for medical cannabis, and it's taken sort of a halfway step to legalize products containing some levels of THC derived from hemp for recreational use. To get some more insight into the president's move and the situation here in Minnesota, I'm joined now by Carol Moss. She's an attorney with the Helmuth & Johnson firm, and she chairs the firm's Cannabis Law Group. Carol Moss, thanks for coming on today. Thank you. I appreciate being here. Now, uh, the president said yesterday that uh, his pardon would cover thousands of people. Um, do, it doesn't seem like a lot of people uh, have been convicted under federal marijuana possession uh, charges, though. Do you have any idea what the numbers are there? Yeah, so you're correct on that. The number of people that have possession convictions at the federal level, from what I've read, is approximately 6,500. So it's not a significant amount of uh, number of people um, when you look at the country as a whole. But I think it does two things. I think it really shows that there has been a major shift in how we view cannabis, view marijuana, and the actions that we've taken in the past as it relates to the convictions of this drug. And then two, it's really important because he is calling on governors across the country to follow his leadership in doing the same for those convicted at the state level. And that's where most, a vast majority of the possession convictions are going to be, it's at the state level. Mm -hmm. So while it's not a huge number, it is a, a, a step in the right direction. And it, it really reflects a shift in how we are viewing uh, the legality of marijuana and cannabis. And he made it clear, and many uh, advocates of legalizing marijuana uh point this out as a racial equity issue that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, black people and, and uh, other people of color uh, are convicted at a much higher proportional rate than, than white people on marijuana charges. Absolutely. And that's the biggest thing that's going to come out of this. You know, many people don't understand that after you've been convicted of a crime and you've served your prison or you've ser served your sentence, that follows you around for the rest of your life and can cause significant difficulties in a person's future. So um, Black Americans are up to four times more likely to be convicted of marijuana possession than white Americans. And you can see as you look through and see the cycle of this, how this affects communities. So taking, for example, a 19-year-old who uh, is convicted for a marijuana possession, does his service, does his time, and he still has a significant number of major life events ahead of him. But these events are going to be affected by his conviction. It will make it more difficult for him to get into a university it will prevent him from getting a federal loan to pay for university. It will prevent him from uh, obtaining certain professional licenses that would allow him to get a better job. Many jobs require a clean background check. He could be precluded from increasing his salary and his income. That goes to, to living conditions. If you have a conviction, you might be denied uh, access to an apartment. If you have a conviction, you are probably don't have as high of earning potential that may make it difficult for you to get a loan and to buy a home. And so you can see in just those few examples why a conviction at the age of 19 can really affect how a person is able to go through life and to, and to advance his through life. Hmm. And it's not just one individual. It affects that individual's family, and it affects that community's citizens. And so when you look at that, and you look at how Black Americans are four times more likely to be convicted, these have huge effects on our communities of color. And so that is a, 
a main point that just cannot be lost in this discussion. And of course, the other uh, the other thing is the the president's pardons don't uh, cover anybody convicted of selling marijuana or distributing marijuana. Mm-hmm. But in 19 states right now, and the District of Columbia, right now, people are selling and distributing marijuana legally. It mm-hmm. seems like kind of an ironic situation and a, a kind of a, a, an unusual legal situation. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I don't call it ironic. I call it tragic because there are thousands of people that are in jail or in prison because of these crimes or have the conviction following them around. And for doing actions, what many corporations across the country are doing and making millions of dollars doing. So that I don't find it ironic. I find it very tragic in all of this. Hmm. And so as we, as we continue on, we, it's not just the the pardoning, but also needs to be the, uh, you know, correcting and assisting in these people with these people who have been so affected. But what we see now was a wrongly, um, a wrong conviction. Mm-hmm. Um, the president also said that he wants to look at reclassifying marijuana. Right now, it's a schedule, mm-hmm. what they call a schedule one drug, mm-hmm. puts it on a list with uh, more dangerous drugs, I think mm-hmm. you clearly say, yes. like heroin and LSD. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to reclassify uh, marijuana at the federal level? Well, I think that will cause a cascade of effects and it will um, assist in um, in the legal, the decriminalizing and legalization of it because it'll be at a lower uh, schedule. I mean, the, the one thing that I tell people is that to be a Schedule One narcotic, there has to be no medicinal value of the of the substance. So marijuana is in Schedule One, where there's allegedly no medicinal value. Yet, 37 states, including the state of Minnesota and and DC, have medical marijuana programs. Fentanyl that is that is causing overdoses are, and killing our kids, that's a Schedule II narcotic. So that is at a lesser crime rate than what marijuana is at. It it doesn't make sense. Hmm. Um, I'll just remind our listeners, I'm talking to Carol Moss. She's a partner at Helmuth & Johnson, the law firm. She chairs the firm's uh, cannabis law group. And I would have just imagined that uh, specializing in cannabis law has to be uh, challenging, given that mm. it's legal in some states, it's illegal at the federal level, it's illegal in other states. Um, uh, what do you spend your time doing as the head of this group? Well, everything and everything that normal businesses deal with, but then you add a very a thick layer of complexity to it. You're right. We are dealing with multiple layers of jurisdiction from even city and county level regulations that we're now dealing with in Minnesota to state to regulatory. And then you add in the federal regulations and how they apply. It really is quite challenging. The best thing that could happen is that it becomes legalized at the federal level and that will create a cascading effect down to the states and make things um, more productive and make things more um, cohesive as we expand on this industry. People don't remember, but hemp, which is cannabis plant with less than 0.3% Delta 9 THC, that was one of our top three crops in this country for 100 years until until it started to become the boogeyman. So this crop, this plant can provide the country with a lot of good uses in the industrial and in the consumption areas. So Getting it legalized at the federal level will help spark that. It will help. It will help fix challenges that we're seeing, such as banking regulations or tax regulations. So, if that happens, which I'm not really holding my breath 
at this rate for the federal, um, that would be extremely helpful it, to Minnesota. But, you know, we're just taking our, our own path in how we are handling THC, hemp derived THC and THC products. And I think there's a lot of states out there that we could look to to see what worked and what didn't work as we continue on this path towards legalization. Well, I, I mean, you mentioned it, but uh, speaking of complicated regulations, I mean, the, the legislature and the governor did approve these hemp-derived products in Minnesota, mm-hmm. but uh, it caught a lot of people by surprise, including apparently some legislators. And now a number of cities and other local governments are uh, going to try to regulate it themselves. This uh, seems incredibly complicated. And, and so our, what does that mean for your business? Yes, you're right. It's it's unnecessarily complicated. And in the past few months, we've spent a lot of time talking to city council, to city managers, to uh, regulators, to <clears throat> county commissioners, trying to educate them on the law, the changes of the law, and the regulation of what these products are. These products, these hemp-derived THCs, have THC products have been sold across the state for the past few years. And so when this law, the new law that went into effect on July 1st, um, was announced, it came by as a surprise to people because they just didn't know these products were being sold. But what they didn't know was prior to July 1st, these products were being sold with no regulation of oversight. There was no regulation on how old you had to be to buy, to buy THC products. No regulation on the amount, the dosage, the, the packaging, the marketing, making them look like they're Cheerios, for example. So this July 1st was law, um, was actually a consumer protection law. It was regulating products that were already on the market. What came to surprise everybody is that they didn't know that these these products were already being sold. And so it became news to them. Hmm. So we've had to do a lot of education, um, a lot of just, you know, talking the issues through. And once people started to learn and started to be more comfortable um, with these products and, and what they are, We've been able to get past a lot of preconceptions, the the gateway drug preconception that haunted it for many years. So we've been doing a lot of education because for my clients who are from growers, processors, retailers all across the state, it doesn't serve these family-owned businesses, if there are pockets of different regulations and licensing at every turn. So we are working with the cities, we are working with the commissioners, and and we are hopeful that at the state legislative le- level, we'll be able to come up with some consistency so that uh, we're not dealing with a mixed match of uh, city laws. I've only got about 30 seconds here, but um, it seems like there's so much demand for this. Uh, there's so much money to be made. So many other states are already doing it. Do you think full legalization in Minnesota at some point is almost inevitable? I do. I don't know if it's at this election, um, but you know there is a sophisticated effort by various organizations to create a coalition to educate voters on how to vote for the legalization of cannabis. And this is a voting issue that spans all political ideologies, spans all ages and, and races. And so we think that working with uh, doing outreach with voters, that this could be a very important uh, issue at the next election. Carol Moss, thanks so much for coming on today. Thank you. I appreciate it. Carol Moss is a partner at Helmuth & Johnson. She chairs the firm's Cannabis Law Group. Invest in the future of NPR News. Join NPR's Leadership Circle. You'll empower programming that examines our world today so you can make a difference in your community tomorrow. Join with a gift of $100 per month at nprnews.org.
It is the first day of our fall member drive. I'm Mike Mulcahy, joined by Steph Curtis. Hello. NPR is, uh, well, it really couldn't happen without you. It's true. So we're asking you today to make a gift, make a contribution, help keep the station strong at mprnews.org or 800-227-2811. We have a special challenge before us right now. This is exciting news. If you, If we hear from 75 people, including you, before 1 o'clock, Today, we will get an extra $5,000 from the NPR Board of Trustees. And these are things that we call the challenge, where somebody steps up, sometimes it's groups of members, sometimes it's the Board of Trustees, sometimes it's a community group of some sort, and say, hey, let's get this member drive moving. How about in one hour you get 75 donations? So that's what we're aiming for. We've got a little bit more than 15 minutes left, and we have 44 members left to go. So we're not even halfway through this, but this can be done. Go to mprnews.org, make a contribution for the first time, renew your membership, make an additional contribution, or call 1-800-227-2811. Making this challenge, it, it's all up to you, as is paying for the programs we do yeah. here at NPR News. It's all up to you. It could be as as little as a dollar a day, mm-hmm. 365 bucks a year. That would be a great investment in NPR News. It would help us meet this $5,000 challenge, which is coming up at the end of the hour. And it would keep great programs coming out of your radio for the next year. Why not do it right now? mprnews.org or 800-227-2811. Yeah, I'd really love to hear from some people who are Politics Fridays fans, people who every Friday at noon, um, on the ramp up to elections and during the legislative season, like Tuning in for Mike Mulcahy's, the hosting, I hope he covers his ears right now, with the, because he doesn't like to hear stuff like this. The fairness, the, in, the background, the context, the curiosity that Mike brings is something that we've done polls and asked people, like, what do you want this election season? And number one has been Politics Friday. They rely on it. And if you are one of those people, contribute right now, whatever amount is right for you, $5 a month, a one-time contribution of $30. Maybe you can do $100 a month. That's fantastic. Every contribution counts right now. We're counting down 75 donations before 1 o'clock, and we'll get an extra $5,000, mprnews.org, or call 1-800-227-2811. Well, I don't know if Bridget listens to Politics Friday, but Bridget from Minneapolis said she recently moved back to Minneapolis or to Minnesota and forgot how great NPR is. <laughs> she says, where I was previously living, the public radio was nowhere near as great as NPR, and that's oh, why thanks, she Bridget. gave today. Maybe it's you don't think it's that great, but you're still listening. <laughs> that's why you should give, because your donation keeps it going and makes it stronger and pays for it, basically. It's a powerful gesture. It means you're willing to support public radio for everybody. Join in. Help us reach this goal. MPRnews.org, 800-227-2811. To ensure the success of the fall member drive, we need to start this first Friday off on a strong note. 75 donations between noon and 1 is what we're looking for. 44 people left to go. One of them should be you. Go right now to MPRnews.org or call 1-800-227-2811. Thank you to everyone who's already contributed. Programming is supported by the Shakopee Mittawakanton Sioux Community, a sovereign tribal nation in Scott County, now hiring. Learn more about the tribe at shakopeedakota.org and at its public exhibit in Shakopee. And this is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. We continue with our focus on Minnesota politics this hour. It really was like a tragic case of deja vu. On Wednesday, Paula Overby, the legal marijuana now party candidate for Congress in Minnesota's 2nd District, died. Just two years ago, the party's candidate in the district, Adam Weeks, died in late September, and then it was too late to take his name off the ballot. That wasn't the only thing that's been happening in the 2nd District race. NPR reporter Mark Zedeklik has been covering the campaign, and he's with me now. Mark, first about Paula Overby. Uh, She was a third-party activist. Uh, This was not the first time she's run for office. No, Mike. She's run for Congress uh, several times. She also made a run as a Democrat uh, against uh, DFL Senator Tina Smith, and she lost uh, all of those campaigns. Interesting politician. She was the first transgender woman 
to run for Congress, according to her campaign. And uh, she was uh, very much of the belief that the two-party system just wasn't working right. And uh, she was a very serious candidate mm -hmm. uh, who articulated her positions and uh, was always available. And uh, it was a tragedy to, yeah. to hear that she had passed away. She'd been hospitalized with heart complications. Um, and uh, that's just uh, the way things ended for her. What uh, what were her issues besides, you know, the, an alternative to the other two parties? What, what was she running on? She was very concerned about defense spending and the amount of money this country spends fighting wars and fueling wars. And she was also concerned about health care, particularly about private insurance companies playing a big role in the way Medicare is delivered with these supplemental plans and that kind of thing. She was uh, talking about the need for just major health care reform in this country and was very concerned that private companies are basically making a lot of money off of, off of health care. Um, now, early voting has already started. Uh, how does, uh, what does election law say about a situation like this where a candidate dies so close to the election? Well, it's interesting, and we're kind of experts on it now because of what happened two years ago, as you mentioned, when the uh, marijuana candidate died in, in late September. State law calls for a special, special election in this circumstance, but federal law preempts that. This is a federal election, and federal law stipulates that the ballot will not be changed. Paula Overby's name will be on the November ballot. Votes will be counted for her, and... Uh, it's it's just a matter of it's going to the the November election will look just as though she's actually running in the election, even though she has passed away. Mm -hmm. So so if this were a state election, or a legislature or something, there, there'd be a there'd special be election. election. There would be an election in November. Then there'd be a special election next year, early yep. next year. But because this is a federal seat, federal law is in place. And the election will just go forward. Yeah. Important to note, though, that for people who have early voted already and cast their ballots, uh, they can very easily request to have those ballots back and they can redo them. And they can do that up until seven days before the election. So there's plenty of time for people who have already cast ballots for Paula Overby to, to redo that. It's a fairly simple process that local elections officials can facilitate so that that, that, that option is available. It just uh, we just don't know what's going to actually play out in terms of people casting ballots now that she's passed away. Mm -hmm. And this is a really closely watched race. And, uh, you know, maybe Paula Overby wouldn't have won, but she, she's been capable of, uh, of drawing a significant uh, percentage of the vote. Um, how do you think this affects the campaign from here? We don't know. Two years ago, the candidate who passed away garnered nearly 6% of the vote. That's a lot mm -hmm. in a close district. That can change things, the, mm -hmm. the, the, the outcome. Uh, and uh, Democrats believe that the marijuana candidates generally draw from them more than Republicans. And uh, we're very unhappy that Paula Overby was running in this race. They're worried that uh, she would take votes away from Angie Craig, the incumbent. We don't know what's going to happen. Uh, I think it's very likely some percentage of the uh, voters there will vote for her. I spoke to a man in Hastings a few weeks ago by the name of Kevin O'Rourke. This was well before news that uh, mm -hmm. Paula had been ill. He was very much aware of Overby's candidacy, and he supports legalizing rec recreational marijuana, but he said he didn't plan to vote for Overby. No, it's a wasted vote. Although I'd like to, but you know the way that our political system is, it, it isn't three, it's two, you know? So, you know, I'm sorry, but I think you're kind of throwing the vote away. Hmm. Wow. Interesting perspective. Uh, looking at the big picture, I guess. Um, what have the front runners been focusing on in this race? Uh, Angie Craig, the DFL incumbent, and uh, Tyler Kistner, the Republican challenger. What, what are they campaigning on? Well, that's interesting, too, because they're campaigning on very different issues, almost talking past each other. Craig's been highlighting major Democratic-led spending bills like the bipartisan infrastructure bill and the inflation reduction act that would pass that passed with no republican support but when craig gets really fired up when she's talking to supporters she's talking about abortion rights here she is in woodbury a couple saturdays ago ladies and gentlemen one in 3 american women as we stand here today no longer have access to reproductive rights in their home states congressional republicans Believe it when they tell you 
who they are and what they will do if they take back the House majority. They are going to ban abortion in our nation, and that affects Minnesota. Mike, Republican Tyler Kistner's downplaying abortion. He notes that it is codified in, in Minnesota's constitution, and he says it's not on the ballot and is suggesting that Craig's focus on abortion rights is just a distraction from other issues, namely economic problems. That's his focus. He's also talking about public safety concerns. He spoke uh, this week in the district when the head of the Republican Party came in to campaign for him. And here's a little bit of what he was telling his supporters. They're facing record high inflation and cost of living. They feel it every day when they go to the grocery store and the gas station, let alone crime is now spreading into the suburbs. And then you have parents that are now concerned about the education system for their children. And that is top of mind for most voters in 2022. And this race is now all about the second congressional race. It's not about a presidential race. It's about the disastrous policies for the last two years. And people want change from those policies because they feel it every single day of just how hard life has gotten with the economic woes that we're feeling. Hmm. Republican Tyler Kistner. Uh, Mark, why are political insiders all over the country keeping an eye on this second congressional district race here in Minnesota? Well, as you know, but a lot of people don't know, most congressional districts are pretty solidly Democratic or Republican. The ones that aren't are the ones that uh, outside groups pay a lot of attention to because they can go either way. This is considered to be one of the most closely contested congressional races in the country. The head of the Republican Party was here, as I mentioned, uh, trying to prop up Kistner's campaign. National Republicans think uh, this is a race in the 2nd District of Minnesota that they need to win if they're to retake the House of Representatives and be in, in control of the House, which they're very much hoping will be the case after the votes are counted. So this is one of a handful of races uh, that is just extremely important to both parties. Republicans think they can flip it. Democrats really want to hold on to it. Mark Zadeklik has been watching this race. Mark, just a last question here. Uh, are there any polls in this race? I haven't seen any. No, it's difficult. Not that I know of. I think internally the campaigns do stuff. I don't put a lot of stock in that because I don't, uh, you know, I, I just... That's their stuff. Mm. Uh, congressional district polls are just, they're harder to do because the, the populations are smaller and, and they're very expensive to get accurate polling. So no, we don't have any good polling that I know of. All right. That's NPR's Mark Zadeklik. Keep an eye on it, Mark, and we'll keep talking to you between now and Election Day. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Programming is supported by Thomson Reuters, providing volunteers, technical expertise, and financial support to Twin Cities communities to combat racism, fight social injustice, and strengthen public trust in our institutions. Learn more at ThomsonReuters.com. The first day of the NPR Fall Member Drive, I'm Mike Mulcahy, and Steph Curtis is here. Hello. Steph, we're asking people to make a gift to mm -hmm. help us uh, reach a goal that we want to hit before 1 o'clock here. That's right. They, uh, go ahead. Let me tell you. All right. So right now, your donation will help unlock $5,000. That's a lot of money from the NPR Board of Trustees if we hear from 75 listeners before 1 o'clock. So a lot of people have been already making contributions. Now we want you to. You can make a um, any donation, any amount, new, one-time, could be a monthly donation, Whatever you want, just make it before 1 o'clock. We need to hear from 75 people. We have 22 people left to go. One of them can be you. Call right now, 1-800-227-2811. Help us get this extra $5,000 or go to mprnews.org. Could be $5 a month, $10 mm -hmm. a month, $15 a month, whatever works counts. in your budget, mm -hmm. whatever you can afford. We've got about four minutes. We want to hit this goal. Left to go. We we want to make this five thousand dollars from the uh, from the board, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I think we can do it. I think but we it's can. Up to you out there listening. Your donation will fuel the news and power the conversations you hear on this station every single day. That's why it's important to step up and make that gift. MPRnews.org or eight hundred two two seven twenty eight eleven. Nineteen members left 
to go. Every contribution counts. How about $15 a month or a one-time gift of 180 And grab, we've got this brand new NPR News coffee tumbler. You've got to see it. Go to nprnews.org and a page will come up and you'll be able to check it out. It's called the Coffee Tumbler and it is colorful and it's really pretty. It's 14 ounces, double wall tumbler, secure lid. You can use it for fall camping, bonfires, keep things hot, keep things cold in the summer. It's a great tumbler. 1-800-227-2811. 19 members left to go, 18 members left to go, or go to mprnews.org. Check out that tumbler and make a contribution. You know, uh, you pay for things you enjoy. Mm-hmm. You pay... If you want to buy your own coffee tumbler, you're going to pay for it. Yeah. If you want to watch Netflix, you can pay for it. Yep. If you want to subscribe to the newspaper, you pay for it. Yep. At NPR News, it's on the honor system. Mm-hmm. We ask you to give uh, of your own volition, right? And 15 bucks a month, 10 bucks a month, $100 a month, whatever works in your budget, whatever you can afford, the money is going to go to pay for the programs you listen to. So it's going to come right back to you. It's a fair system, but it only works when you make that decision to go to the computer right now, mprnews.org, or pick up the phone right now, 800-227-2811, and make that gift to NPR News. Okay, right now, let me remind you, we have an extra $5,000 that can be unlocked. It's from the NPR Board of Trustees. They wanted to get this fall member drive started really strong out of the gate. So they said, you know, between noon and 1, if you get 75 people to contribute, it can be any amount a one-time donation, a monthly donation, doesn't matter. Just 75 people to contribute will throw an extra $5,000. We have 12 people. We still need to hear from about two minutes to go. Two minutes. How about you? 1-800-227-2811 or go to mprnews.org. 11 members left to go, about two minutes, one a minute and a half, in fact. It can be done. Don't worry about everybody else. Nope. You make the call or you click and join. You know, we're going to be here uh, every week yep. co- up to the election. Next week, we've got a debate in the attorney general's race. Mm-hmm. Already getting ready for that. It's going to be a good one. You know you come here for the news. You know you come here for the perspective. You know you come here for the great information. That's why you should help pay for it. And it's simple. You don't have to pay for it all. You just have to do what you can afford. Ten bucks a month, 15 bucks a month. Hundred dollars a month, Steph. You know, if you earn at Steph's mm-hmm. level, you could you could probably afford that. <laughs> so, help us make this first day of the member drive. Help us meet this goal. We've only got a minute to go. MPRnews.org, eight hundred two two seven twenty eight eleven. I'd really especially like to hear from people who value Politics Friday. Let me tell you the the the, the shows around here keep track of. Who gets the most donations? So if you are really? a yeah, <laughs> if you are a Politics Friday fan and a fan of Mike Mulcahy, donate right now. We'll take notice of that. Go to mprnews.org. Ten members left to go in this challenge. We'll get us an extra five thousand dollars. How about you? Call one eight hundred two two seven two eight one one. Help us make the goal. You can do it. We can't do it without you. One eight hundred two two seven twenty eight eleven or mprnews.org, and thank you so much.